I want to encourage you, if you've not already done so, to turn to the letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're going to begin reading there in just a moment. The title of this morning's message, we're in part four of a series of studies talking about His love. It's all about His love. And you'll recall from the very beginning of the study that this chapter 13 sits between two other chapters, 12 and 14. It's part of a unit where the Apostle Paul is explaining that the idea of ministry described in 1 Corinthians 12 and the practice of ministry described in chapter 14 requires something to make it happen. You can't move from the idea to the practice of ministry without love. And so the people in Corinth were learning how to love one another. Extremely gifted, extremely talented, um, really a kind of church that most of us would probably be delighted to be part of, uh, even though we knew some of the dirty laundry, and yet a church that was missing something they desperately, desperately needed. This morning, our title is Loving the People You Know. Loving the People You Know. And I wonder, as we've been studying this, and I mentioned this in one of the earlier messages, that when you and I study something in God's Word, that when we know Him, and that we're on this journey where He's teaching us and changing us and molding us into the image of Jesus, His Son, that when you're on that journey, one of the things that happens when you study God's Word is that He has this amazing way of taking what you're learning and studying and bringing something into your experience that causes you to have to apply what you're learning. Have you met someone recently that has been something of a challenge to love? Now, you don't have to raise your hand. You don't need to look at anyone next to you. But I find that whenever we study something, especially like love, we begin to find all kinds of practical ways that God wants us to learn it. In chapter 13, verse 4, there are 15 verbs used to describe love. And we've already learned that love ultimately is a person, that love described here was only accomplished by one person who has ever lived, and that was Jesus Christ. But with Jesus in us, we can love like this. Verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. And then our focus is going to be on verse 5. Does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And I want to call your attention to the four verbs in verse 5. Does not behave rudely does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. And I want to make a statement that may seem kind of obvious to you, but it's one that they actually had put into your listening guide if you're following along. But it's this statement, love wouldn't be so hard if it didn't involve other people. I mean, love as an idea is one thing, but loving somebody that you know, and you know too much, perhaps, about that person, 
Well, that's another thing. And so we've got to learn how to do that because obviously every person we know is different than we are. They have strengths that we don't have. They also have faults that we don't have. And how do I love a person that I know? And so in these next four phrases, we see something of how Jesus does it. And he is the one who's not only our example, but he is the very life that we need inside us in order to love people like this. So we're going to show how Jesus does this today in four different encounters over the course of his life. So here's the statement. How does Jesus show love in his relationships? We're going to see this four ways. Number one, here's the first principle. Cover the shame of others and don't be the cause of it. Cover the shame of others and don't be the cause of it. The phrase is, does not behave rudely, from verse 5. Now, to behave rudely describes any action that causes or brings shame on others. I mean, the root of that word had the idea that there was a social standard of right and wrong, and when someone completely blew that off and they acted in a way that was counter to everything decent in the eyes of most people, that was considered shameful. And he's saying that love doesn't act that way. Love doesn't cause shame. Love doesn't act shamefully. Love doesn't bring shame into the lives of others. Now, this whole subject of shame goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. And uh, we're not going to read the Scripture, and someday I'd like us maybe to do a study on this whole business of honor and shame, because so much of the world where we're trying to take the gospel is built around those two ideas. But in Genesis chapter 3, we, we, we are introduced to this idea of shame. Because from the very moment that Adam and Eve sinned, shame entered into the world. Shame entered into their lives. Right after they sinned, you'll, you'll remember that they had an immediate awareness that they didn't have any clothes on. Now you and I, we noticed that right away when we're reading the text. But they didn't know that. And the moment that they sinned, they became aware that they were naked. But worse than that, they experienced shame that something is wrong with me and it doesn't feel good. They tried to hide that sensation. They tried to do it in a couple of different ways. The first one is literally by hiding. You remember the story how they took fig leaves and sewed them together. And you know, you and I may laugh at that effort, but it probably was more than some people actually wear anymore. But it was their effort to cover this feeling, this sense, awful sense of shame that they were experiencing. And so they not only tried to hide it, what they were feeling, not just from one another, but even from themselves, but they also literally tried to hide from God. God comes into the garden. Adam, where are you? God knew where Adam was. But Adam was hiding, wasn't he? He didn't want God to see him because he felt wrong. He felt dirty. He felt unclean. He felt something was wrong with him. So one of the ways we deal with shame is we hide. I want to hide it from you. I want to hide it even from myself. I want to hide it from God. The second thing we do is blame. Shame causes us to hide. It also calls us to blame. God comes into the garden and he says, Adam, where are you? He says, I was, I was naked. I was afraid, so I hid. And God says, who told you that you were naked? Now listen to this. This is what he says. He said, 
It was the woman. You hear some blame in that? That you gave me. You hear blame in that? So not only is he hiding, but now he has a sense of wrongness. And God is asking him about what he has done and the sense of wrongness in his life. He's not even dealing with it. He's just skipping right over that. And he's right away going to the place of blame. It was the woman that you gave me. And then God asked the woman, what did you do? What did you do? She said, it was the serpent. So she's blaming too. And so hiding and blaming is one of the basic ways that we shame. Can I say this? That hiding and blaming in response to the shame and the sin in your life is the number one cause and source of every problem that you have in a relationship. Number one, if you're experiencing a problem today with someone else, the root of it is sin and the resultant shame that it has created in your life, a sense of wrongness that you're trying to hide or deal with. Well, love overcomes this. That's why Jesus said the greatest commandment is what? To love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and strength. What's the second part of that? To love your neighbor. To love your neighbor. And love has a way of overcoming shame, not hiding from people, not trying to blame other people for what I've done, uh, not holding things against them, whatever you, you want to say. It doesn't behave rudely. It doesn't add to the shame of other people. Jesus illustrates this for us in John chapter 8, verse 4. It'll be up on the screen. Jesus is the only one who ever loved this way. And so in John 8, chapter 4, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, some people think it's their job in life to expose the shame of everybody else. You know that, don't you? Some people think that's actually their job, and that's what these men were doing. They caught this woman in the very act of adultery, and she's experiencing shame. Now, Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? And so here's a woman. She's been caught. She's experiencing shame. It's her own fault, but there's a, a guilt that she has now according to the law. Verse 7, so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And then later in verse 8, it says, being convicted by their conscience, they went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. I really believe that this was a supernatural event. That at that, that very moment, that the Holy Spirit brought such conviction to each of those men that they forgot about her shame. They forgot about her sin. And they experienced what she was experiencing. They experienced the wrongness of their own heart. They realized that every stone I was going to pick up and throw at her should be thrown at me. That the people that I'm always looking down on, the people that I'm wanting to put down, the people who I'm wanting to expose and embarrass or hurt or gain vengeance against or whatever the case may be, whoever these people are, even if they are legitimately in the wrong, I'm suddenly realizing that all the shame that they bear, I also carry that same shame. So how does Jesus respond to that? Well, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, 
woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So he says two things to this woman. He said, I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to condemn you. You know, Jesus actually said, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. The world's already condemned, the truth be told. He said, I'm not going to condemn you. But then he said something else to her. Go and sin no more. He said, he said stop hurting yourself. Stop doing things that are destructive to this person that I made. Stop treating yourself this way. Stop making it worse. Quit doing this to yourself. So the question that comes to my mind is this. Did Jesus create shame or cover shame? Does he go around and create this thing inside of us or does it already exist because of our own sin? The sense of wrongness and this need to hide or blame someone for what I feel. Jesus is saying to this woman that you are, you are incredibly valuable to me. These men thought you were worthless, but I want you to know that you're valuable to me. Lady, you matter. I want, you see, every, every person that you know has a sign hanging around their neck. And if you look really closely, you can see the sign hanging around their, their, their neck, and it's got these words on it. Do I matter to you? Do I matter to you? Every person you meet, the person sitting beside you, the person sitting in front of you, the person sitting behind you, every one of them has this on them. Do I matter to you? And at that point, you've got to ask yourself, how are you answering that question when you, when you talk to people? What is, your, what is your message to them? When you mention someone else's name, they may not even be present. But how are you answering that question by the way that you talk about that person or discuss that person with someone else? You see, Jesus doesn't cause or create shame. He covers it. The place we practice this ultimately is with other believers. I can't just go out in the world and suddenly start doing this. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, the apostle says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another. He's talking to Christians. Fervent love, fervent love, hot, white hot love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. You can always tell the health and maturity of a church by the way they handle shame. Do we make people feel like that no matter what, we're going to love them? When someone comes in the door, they come into a Bible study group, when, do they sense that this is a people who are going to love me even if they know the very worst about me, even if I were to open up to them and they could see the wrongness that I carry or that I feel on the inside? Will they accept me? Will they love me? Are these people like that? Love covers a multitude of sins. You know, several weeks ago this summer, this website, Ashley Madison, was hacked by computer crazies, and they took all of the names in this database. And you say, well, what, 
What was Ashley Madison about? Well, it was an adultery uh, service where you could go into that website, pay a fee, and have a quiet, theoretically quiet, anonymous encounter with someone other than your spouse. You could have adultery for a price. And thousands and thousands and thousands of men and women signed up for it, more men than women. And among them were some believers, Christians. Less than three weeks ago, a professor at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary discovered that his name was in that database and that he was going to be exposed. This professor was probably one of the most popular professors on campus. And the shame of that potential exposure was so great that he went home and killed himself, took his life. His wife, his, his adult children, students he had taught for years were in shock. Not because he was caught and exposed in a sin, but because this man who had given grace to so many people was not able to give grace to himself. And I read about that. I, I knew him. I had met him. And I knew about his popularity. And, and here's the thing that crossed my mind. And I'd really like you to think about this with me. What kind of church have we created? Where someone feels that they could not come into a church, into a group of Christians who understand sin, who un understand shame, who understand grace, who understand mercy. What kind of church have we created in North America where someone who experiences that kind of shame does not feel that they can come to a church and find forgiveness? Last week we talked about the older brother and the story of the prodigal son and how many people coming to church hoping that they would be accepted, hoping that they would be forgiven, meet the older brother before they meet the father. And they turn and leave say, there's no hope for me. There's no place in the world I can go where someone will cover my shame. Yet the very nature and essence of the gospel is that he covers our shame. In fact, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, the apostle says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means the covering, the atonement for our sins. Our shame is exposed before holy God. What does he do? Because of love, he sends his Son to cover our shame. To cover our sin. And we are called to do the same. To love people, to not behave rudely in a way that adds to people's shame and hurt is to cover it. To cover it. The men and I were talking about gossip and slander on Thursday morning in our Bible study. We talked about what happens when someone comes to you with, with dirt about somebody else, whether it's true or not. What do you do with that dirt? 
We talked about how relationally you, you go to that person because that's what love would do. And you go to that person, you say, look, I've been told this, I want you to know that, and I'm here to love you and pray for you and encourage you. And I'd really like to know the truth. But that dirt, what do you do with dirt? What do you do with dirt? Do you, do you frame it and hang it in your living room? No, you take dirt in the backyard, you dig a hole, you put the dirt in it, and you cover it back up with more dirt. You, you, don't, you don't carry it around with you. You don't pass it on to somebody else. Say, hey, I got some good dirt. You want some dirt? No, you go. You cover it. You bury it. You put it away. So love does not behave rudely. That's the first principle we learn. It's like Jesus to learn to cover shame. Number two, second principle. Discover and meet needs while trusting God with yours. Discover and meet needs while trusting God with yours. It says, love does not seek its own. And the word there for seek means to an extended search, like a journey where you're, you're searching, you're looking for something that you're trying to find. And he says, you don't search like that for you. Love doesn't search for itself. We live in a world that increasingly measures relationships by what you deliver to me what you give to me, what I get from you. The mindset is that you exist to take care of me. If I'm married and this person no longer meets my needs, then I'm through. And it's a bad, toxic relationship, and I need to just bring it to a close. It's all about this mindset of you exist to take care of me. It's like the difference between cats and dogs. We always had dogs in the house when we were raising children. And uh, I would walk into a room, the dog would wag his tail, his whole body would wag. And uh, the dog is saying, you love me, you feed me, you shelter me, you care for me, you must be God. I mean, they just, they just, see, they just see you in an amazing way. Cats are not like that. Cats say, you love me, you feed me, you shelter me, you care for me, I must be God. And for all the cat lovers I just offended, send your angry emails to tmaino at winbaptistchurch.com. <laughs> but in contrast to that, Jesus was all about meeting the needs of those around him. We talked about this before, that everywhere Jesus goes in the Gospels, it seems he meets two kinds of people. He meets searching people who need answers from God, and he meets hurting people who need relief from God. And so Jesus is always about meeting needs. Even on the cross, the moments before he died, we read in Luke 23, verse 33. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, they, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Who's he talking about? The guys that are trying to kill him. Even at that moment, He's more concerned about their needs than about his own. Just a few verses later in verse 42, then he said to Jesus, one of those thieves dying on the cross, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He's dying on the cross. And he has time to turn to a thief. He says, I'm going to take care of you. Why does he do this? 
with Jesus' entire life mission is summed up in Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. His whole mission is not about him. His mission was about you and me. So practically, what does that mean? Love does not seek its own. It means when you and I enter into relationships and Christ fills you and he begins to work in you and he is filling your mind and he is filling your heart in this relationship you have with someone, what does that mean practically? It means your interest is in them. You're seeking their interest. You're seeking their well-being. It means you might ask them questions to find out more about them rather than just telling them all about you. It means finding out what their needs are, discovering their needs. Not seeking my own means I'm seeking somebody, so I'm seeking theirs, trying to find out what is their relationship with God. You know, the single most important thing you can know about someone is do they know God? Because that's their greatest need. And do they know him? Have they put their trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior? And seeking that, discovering their need, seeking to meet that need, to share the gospel with them. Even in our relationships with other believers, putting their needs ahead of our own and seeking their needs. And you say, well, what about my needs? You know what Jesus did with his needs? You know what he did? He took everything he needed and he gave it to his Father. Jesus trusted God with his needs. Because I tell you right now, there's no human being on earth that can meet all your needs. You can get married to the most wonderful man on the planet, the most wonderful woman on the planet. No human being can meet all your needs. If they, if they could, they would be God. No one can do that. And so in all these relationships that you have, you are called to seek, not your own, but to seek their good, their interests. And in the process of doing that, you take your needs that may be unmet, all your needs, and you give them to God. What a difference that would make in our marriages, in our friendships, in our Bible study groups, in Wynn, Arkansas, if we were to go out of here each week and to seek the needs of others. Discover and meet needs while trusting God with yours. There's a third principle here. The first one is to cover shame. The second one is discover needs, trust God with yours. The third one is this. Reject anger when you are wounded. Love is not provoked. Reject anger when you are wounded. This idea of provoked obviously is passive. Somebody's doing something to you, okay? And, and the concept in the word is something sharp or pointed happening to you. So somebody jabs you, literally or figuratively. And what it's saying here is that when love is jabbed, it doesn't react. When love is poked, it doesn't react. When love is provoked, it doesn't react. Now, I know the King James Version, if you've got one of those, it says love is not easily provoked. Can I tell you that that's not what the Bible is saying at that place? It is saying love is not provoked, period. It doesn't react on the basis of what you have done to it. You can kick it, you can poke it, you can mistreat it, you can abuse it, and he's saying that love does not react to that. 
There's a situation in the life of Jesus where they're in a situation that was provoking. And it provoked the disciples. Luke chapter 9, verse 52. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. So they didn't receive them. But when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? They were so proud of themselves. I've been reading their Bible. But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives but to save them, and they went to another village. It was that simple. Was love provoked? Not Jesus. Did he seek revenge? Nope. Had he been wronged? Yes. Hospitality in the Middle East was was an obligation that you owed to every person that came along. Not showing hospitality was an insult. So he had been grieved. He'd been he'd been definitely been hurt. So how do you do this? How how do you how do you become a person who doesn't react when you are hurt, wounded, provoked? In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26, Paul writes, "Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath." Now, I know there are people who say, "Well, Christians, there's a righteous kind of anger that Christians can have, and there's things we should get angry about." Well, we don't have time to discuss that in detail. Let's look at this passage. Because in verse 31, he says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, you see the word anger? Clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. So how much anger can you keep? Zero. Zero. None. He doesn't say you're never going to get angry. But he says the moment you get angry, you already need to start working on getting rid of it. The very moment you feel it, the very moment you sense it, you should be crawfishing away from that as hard as you can, saying, Lord Jesus, help me. I don't want to go there. I don't want to live there. I don't want to react like that. So all anger needs to go. And and when he says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you, can I just tell you in the short version that this can only be accomplished as a work of the Holy Spirit of God in you, that this is passive. He says, let it be put away from you. What does that mean? It means the Holy Spirit wants to fill you up. The Holy Spirit wants to fill you with the temperament of Jesus. He wants to fill you up with the heart of Jesus. He wants to fill you up with the reactions of Jesus. And he says, so you've got to just simply let go of this stuff. And if you'll let it go, the Holy Spirit will take it away from you. Now, that may need to happen 20 times in a day, depending on what somebody did. When it says be angry in that verse, it talks about something that somebody did to you. It talks about being provoked. You've got a legitimate reason to be angry and to be upset. He says, but the moment that happens, he says, let it go. Why do we need to get rid of all anger? Ultimately, anger wants to act. Anger does not like sitting still. Anger wants to go do something about what it's angry about. In James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, he explains why we can't be angry. He says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's why you and I can't be angry. Because wrath wants to do something, anger wants to do something, and it's not going to be what God wants you to do. It's always going to carry you somewhere 
else. Instead, Paul says in Philippians 4, 5, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Sit on your anger. Let gentleness be the thing that comes out. And then the fourth and final principle is this, that Jesus is showing us how to love people that we know. Cover shame. Discover needs. Meet them. Trust God with yours. Third principle is reject anger when you are hurt. Never going to do you any good. Certainly not going to do them any good. And then number four, remove the relational garbage out of your mind. Remove the relational garbage out of your mind. The Bible says here that love thinks no evil. Thinks no evil. Now what's he describing there? He's describing, it's an accounting term. And if you've ever studied in a Bible study class or something, words like justification, um, imputed, or some of these other theological words, you've, you've dealt with this concept before. But when he says, thinks no evil, he says, don't be like an accountant who when somebody does something wrong to you, you go, got that one. Somebody else does something wrong to you. Gotcha. Writing that one down. And then they do it again. You write it down. And he says, don't be a person who records wrongs, who keeps a record of wrongs. He says, don't do that. Love does not keep a record or enter into the books bad things done by others. Why? Well, just like anger, thinking like this always affects the way that you treat others. Paul says if you keep score, you aren't loving them, and in fact, you can't love them. They did this, they did this, they did this. You're sitting and trying to talk to someone, and they say, well, he did this, he did this, she did this, she did that. And all they can do is recount everything that the other person has done. And eventually it will color everything that they see about that person. They will see no good in them. They will see nothing of value in that person. All they will see is hurt. All they will see is shame. And it will get to a place that even when that person does something right, it's still wrong. I mean, they get to a place because somebody's been keeping a record of wrongs. That person gets to a place in the relationship because I've been keeping a record that there's nothing that person can do to make it right. There's nothing that they're ever going to do that's right. And even what they do that's right is wrong. The result in me is bitterness, hatred, and a vengeful spirit. They cannot erase your books. If you're the kind of person who keeps a historical record of everything somebody's done wrong to you, that person cannot erase your books. Only you can close the books and throw them away. Only you. Love thinks no evil. Thank God he doesn't do this with you and me. In Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? What if God did that to you and to me? Well, there he goes again. Pusick messed up again. Boom. Writes it down another one. I don't know. I guess he can write that fast. Who could stand? In fact, God sent Jesus to make this clear to you and me that he doesn't do that. This is how God handles the bad stuff about you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 29, God was in Christ. Now, this is where Christ meets you. We've looked at how Christ handles other people. This is Christ meeting you. God was in Christ, reconciling the world, that's you, to himself, 
not imputing their trespasses to them. What does that mean? It means he wasn't thinking evil, wasn't keeping a record, wasn't keeping a list, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So Paul's telling you a couple things about God's love. He's telling you that you, you do have trespasses, you do have sins, you do have things that have created shame, a sense of wrongness in your life. But what does he do with it? He covers it. He sends Christ. First Peter 2, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. It uses the plural version of sin, just like here it uses the plural of trespasses. What does that mean? It means that every individual thing that you have ever done, God's doing a couple things with it. He's not keeping a record. And the second thing is, Jesus died for it. Not sin is an idea. He didn't just say, oh, Don is sinful, so I'm dying for his sinfulness. No. He's dying for that thing I did when I was seven. He's dying for that thing I did when I was 12. He died for that thing I did when I was 23. He's died for every single sin I've ever committed. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. But he doesn't think about it. He doesn't keep a list. He's not charging me with that stuff. So God does not relate to us based on what we have done to him, but what on he has done for us. That's what he does. And he wants to come to you, and he wants to know you. And he's not sitting up there with a big magic marker board, and he's making notes on your life. Yes, we've got sins. Yes, we have trespasses. But he's given you and me the word of reconciliation. We ought to live like it. Love does not think evil keeping a record of wrongs pastor I can't love at that standard I don't have in me the capacity to love the person I'm thinking of right now who has so hurt me and so attacked me and so damaged me I cannot love that person pastor how do I do that let me close with this statement when Jesus lives in you you can love people as much as you want to. When Jesus lives in you, you can love people as much as you want to. So if you're here this morning and you know Christ, and he lives in you, you have all of the capacity and the power of Jesus Christ himself living in you. You have no excuse. You have the capacity to love the most difficult person you can imagine because Jesus loves them and he can love them in you and through you. So how do, you, how do you get that? How do you go there? Well, if you're not a Christian, you have to have Christ in you. And, and, and his coming in you, he only comes at your invitation. He doesn't just come in and take over. He doesn't force himself on you. Love wouldn't do that either. The Bible says you have sin, you have shame. But he wants to cover that. He wants to remove that. And he does it through his cross. And he does it through his blood that he shed for you to cover your sins. To take the punishment that you deserve. And so when you come and you trust Christ for forgiveness, he gives you forgiveness. Not just because he just looks the other way and says, I'm not going to look at your sin. No, he sees all of it and he takes it on himself and he punishes every single sin. Everything necessary to bring justice in the universe back to where it ought to be. Jesus did it for you on the cross. When you trust him, he'll forgive you. But the glorious thing is that you would keep on sinning. You could never change. 
you would be the same person if that's all that happened. But he doesn't stop there. The Bible says that when you trust Christ, that you can be born again, that his Holy Spirit will come inside you and merge with your spirit, and you will have a new divine presence inside you. You will have the Spirit of God living in you, the Spirit of Jesus Christ living in you. The same Jesus you read about in the Gospels, he will come and he will teach you and he will grow you and he will transform you. And whatever it was you used to do, whatever the things are that you're doing now, he's going to target those things in your life and he's going to teach you. Don, you can't talk that way to people. Don, you can't treat people like that. Don, you're supposed to love this guy or this woman that's been hurtful to you. He's going to work on you. And it's called transformation. It's called discipleship. It's what happens when we follow Christ. And I want to invite you this morning to begin that journey if you've never taken it, and you've never trusted Christ, and you've never experienced the new birth. I invite you to come. Pastors, when we stand and sing in just a moment, we'll be standing at the end of each aisle. I'm going to ask you to get up out of the pew, out of the balcony, and come. Talk to these pastors. Say, I want to be saved. I want Jesus to live and love through me. And then Christian, are you living in the power of Christ? Are you experiencing the life and love of Jesus in your life? And if not, why not? What is the hold up? What's the block? Well, typically it's because you and I are not letting him rule. Typically it's because we're sitting on our throne and we're hanging on to it with all our might. We're saying, God, I know you saved me. I know you forgave me. But I'm going to just sit on my throne a little while longer, and I'm going to be angry at that guy. You can't do that, can you? And you got to get off of your throne of your life. you got to say, Jesus, come, take control. I don't even know where to begin, Lord Jesus. But I want you to come and to be my Lord. I want you to come and sit on the throne of my heart again. I want you to wash me clean, forgive me for what I have done. And then I want you to fill my life with your power, your presence. And I want you to love people through me. Can I ask you to bow your head and to close your eyes? As the Lord has spoken to you, how will you respond to him? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us, not only through the text, but also through your spirit in these moments. And so, Lord, as we respond to you, as we say yes to you, Would you guide us? Father, for the one that needs to come forward, would you lead them? And as they sense that leading, would they abandon themselves to you? For that brother or sister who's been struggling in a relationship, they know they've got to lay it down, that you've got to be on the throne of their heart. Would you whisper your love to them? May they sense your sweetness and how much better life is when you're in control than when we are. Oh God, lead us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.